2: Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Andy Last, and you are listening to Beyond Synth. This is episode 68, and my guest today is Makeup and Vanity Set. This is a big one, and in fact, we talked for so long that it's going to be a two-part episode. I was very concerned as to how I was even going to edit this show down, because we talked for like three and a half hours or something, and that was without uh, musical interruption. That was just talking, and I'm like, oh, shit. Like, as we were talking, I started to get more and more concerned because we were having a good talk, and I didn't want to stop it. Uh, who cares? Anyways, the point is <laughs> that Makeup and Vandy set is the guest, and it is going to be a two-part extravaganza, but we are still going to listen to a bit of music before we get to the interview, and we're going to do the regular stuff. So, as always, Beyond Synth is brought to you by Down to DownToJam.com. It's a free website that helps musicians around the world connect based on musical compatibility. So if you're a musician looking for a partner to jam with or to fill a spot in your band, your musical band, uh, you're going to want to check out this site and sign up down to jam.com. That's D-O-W-N-T-O-J-A-M.com. It's a social media website for musicians. Beyond Synth is on every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Power85.com. That's 24-hour a day streaming radio, awesome synthwave goodness. And Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time is when we air Beyond Synth, and there is a, a rebroadcast on Saturdays. You can follow Power85 at Power85 Radio on Twitter, and also follow at Project Friday FM. That is the tw- Twitter account for the show Project Friday, which is on Power 85's on Friday nights. Anyways, listen, let's listen to a song, and then we'll get to some more business, okay? So here's a track. It's by Gunship, and this is Tech Noir, The Carpenter Brute Remix.
0: I feel alive. Will you come Away with me you be
2: Gunship, with the track Tech Noir, the Carpenter Brute Remix. And that's a cool song on its own, and it's pretty cool when Carpenter Brute remixes it. Carpenter Brute is cool, and so are Gunship. Uh, as we'll hear in the interview with Makeup and Vanity said, you know, they've been around... They. I mean, he's, he's been around for a while, and... You know, some of these artists who were sort of at the very dawn of the synthwave scene or before the synthwave scene and the synthwave scene sort of emerged around them uh, were very influential to uh, other artists. And, of course, uh, I mentioned this to uh, Makeup and Vandy said during the show, but, you know, I heard about them through Le Cassette uh, when Le Cassette said... uh, or adam from look was like you know he was listening and heard that people were doing this kind of music and cited uh, makeup and vanity set specifically is one of the artists he listened to that were like oh that really got him excited to make the sort of music they were making which is pretty cool like, it's pretty awesome stuff the way that all the artists have sort of influenced each other but let's get to some business let's look at the patreon So, we are going to check the Patreon. Um, as you know, Beyond Synth has a Patreon, which means that people who want to support Beyond Synth can give a monthly donation to the show. And uh, it's pretty cool. And you get a shout out on the show. And depending on how much you donate, you can uh, listen to upcoming episodes. I do have a point to make because I noticed a sort of discrepancy this week. So Patreon, unlike Kickstarter, is a monthly donation system, which basically means, you know, if you pledge a dollar, that means you're technically pledging a dollar a month, right? So that would be $12 in the year sort of thing, which is why I recommend people if they want to donate, they donate the lowest amount because that's the way Patreon works. So I know a few of you kind of donated uh, some higher amounts, and I think some people thought maybe it was sort of like a one-time deal, which is fine. If you want to donate just a one-time donation to the show, that's totally cool, but you got to wait till it actually processes. So if you say, hey, I want to donate five bucks to the show, but I don't want to do five bucks a month, I just want to give five bucks, then that's totally cool, but you got to wait until uh, Patreon actually processes The donation or else it doesn't go through. You know, if you pull out before they actually take the money from your your credit card, that means you didn't actually donate anything. Again, which is fine like I'm not, uh, I don't want to pressure anybody I just want people to be clear on what Patreon actually is which is a monthly donation system for artists and, and creators and stuff like that. Anyways, let's look here. So, of course, we've got our regular band of rogues. Uh, We've got uh, Project Friday. Uh, Thanks for donating. And Lunar Baboon. And a -a Noxabello. And a Zikarax. And Eric Valerio. Thank you very much, guys. And, of course, my special $5 donors. We've got Kai, which I still have not gotten any confirmation if I'm saying that correctly. If it's Kai or Key or K, because it's K-E-I. I'm saying that's Kai, but then if it was K-A-I, I would also say that is Kai. Kai. Uh, it doesn't matter I'm just saying uh, you know help help me out here man tell me how to say it also Joe Ozone although he's changed it to say Joe and Lando which is of course his uh, they both co-host a podcast uh, with each other so I don't know if he's doing donations on behalf of both of them now I should ask him and find out it would be very easy to get an answer to this question but I'm not going to ask it now I will ask it later on but thank you very much Joe and Lando, who, uh, hosts several, uh, cool podcasts that you should check out. Um, although, no, I don't think Lando has anything to do with the ozone nightmare, which is Joe's thing, but when they both get together... No, no, no. When they both get together, it's Ozone Nightmare. When it's Joe by himself, it's Ozone Late Night. Woo! Okay. Thank you, Joey Bergeron, for your lovely $5 donation. You're a cool guy, and uh, I appreciate your patronage of the show. Uh, It's pretty cool, and I uh, thank you for it. Uh, You're a cool guy with a cartoon avatar with a beard and a baseball cap. I think I've said that before, but um, maybe I'll find out some more trivia about Joey. One of these days, I'll just go on one of his uh, social media profiles and uh, stalk it and find out some useful information about Joey Bergeron, like I did with other $5 donor, Florence Bullock. Thank you, Florence. You are a lovely lady who has donated $5, and of course... By going through her Twitter feed, I discovered that she likes wrestling. Hey, Florence, did you ever play the wrestling games on the Nintendo 64? Because I was never big into wrestling, but I really liked WrestleMania 2000. And I know everybody preferred the one that came after it whose name escapes me at the moment. Anyways, WrestleMania 2000 was cool because you could make a character with a gas mask. That's That was my thing. I always like making characters with masks, as people know. Anyways, listen, thank you, Florence, for your kind donation. Thank you all who donate to the Patreon. And as I mentioned before, if you want to do a one-time donation that's totally cool, just make sure you actually let Patreon take the money from you. Or else you have made a one-time donation of nothing. Which uh, is cool too, man. I'm just happy that people listen to the show. Anyways, let's listen to a track. This is by Dallas Campbell, and this is a track called Return to Earth. That was Return to Earth by Dallas Campbell. And that is a cool song. Dallas is a cool guy. Just to give you a frame of reference for when Makeup and Vanity said he digs his music, you can be like, hey, I remember that. And you should know uh, Dallas anyways, because he's awesome. And uh, him and Ogre made this really wicked album, which you can use as an alternate soundtrack to the film 2001, and we're going to be talking about that with both of those guys in a few weeks. So that should be a cool show. And uh, don't forget that uh, the jingles on Beyond Synth are, down, are done <laughs> are done by Hoo-Ha, all right? He's a super talented uh, synthwave artist, and you can uh, check out his stuff. Uh, there will be a link on the SoundCloud, and of course he's even put out an album of the Beyond Synth jingles for you to check out, so that's pretty cool. And remember, if you want to hear your tracks on the show... Um, I always reach out to artists' permission before I feature their songs, so if you want to send me stuff to play, you can send me links to the Beyond Synth SoundCloud, that's uh, soundcloud.com slash beyond hyphen synth. You can send links to the Facebook page, that's facebook.com slash beyond.synth.podcast, and you can also send me links to my Twitter account. That's at Andy Last on Twitter. You can always send me a private message or, uh, you know, links or whatever. And that is how you do it. All right. So listen, we are going to go to part one of my chat now with makeup and vanity set. So uh, enjoy the show. And I am here with Makeup and Vanity Sets. How do you say your last name? It's pronounced Pusty. All right. Which is... uh... Polish and confusing to a lot of people. Well, then I'm here with Matt Pusty from fucking makeup and vanity set. And I say from makeup and vanity set, you just are makeup and vanity set.
1: There's actually two of us most of the time. It's is uh, there? There is a uh, Christian Williams is uh, this kid that I met four or five years ago, and he plays drums with me. When we play shows, he plays drums. On record, he's never, he played drums on Wilderness. And uh, I did a remix for a dude named Vogel, Rob Vogel, who's out in LA. And, uh, he helped me with that remix. So yeah, he's, he's technically a part. He's a part of it.
2: Where's he at? He's, uh... I don't know where he is. I should text him. <laughs> Let's see what's going on. You know, sometimes I go back in time on people's timelines and do research and stuff. I didn't really do too much of that today, so you can tell me all about yourself. We'll, <laughs> we'll learn together. Okay. You've been doing makeup and vanity sets for a long time, even though the sound is sort of morphed.
1: When I started making music, I was making a lot of... Ideas. IDM, and this is like a long time ago. I think I started making music when I was like 16, and I'm 34 now, so it's been a while. And I was making tons of IDM, I was super into Warp Records, and I was just headfirst into that. And I'd been making a bunch of music under the name Mechup, which was like a made-up, sort of just me trying to be like Autekker, basically. And that sort of morphed into the word makeup and uh, it was actually it was a friend of mine came up with the idea of makeup and vanity set and I liked it because it was by nature it feels very um, born out of aesthetic the idea of aesthetic and it's not something that immediately screamed uh, electronic music to me Uh, and you gotta think this is probably like 2004 when I started so at that time you could still go to like a record store in a mall yeah And there'd be, like, compilation CDs with like, 3D-rendered, like, gears and crap mm-hmm. on, the, on the cover. Like, it was just a horrible time for, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, it was sort of just, it just seemed very, uh, anti. It was just, like, very much against the grain, so to speak. So, I think that's what really attracted me to it. But there's not really any deeper meaning than that.
2: I think when I first heard of you was, even though I know you've been doing this for, like, such a long time, but it was, like, I think when I did, like, the Look Cassette show, mm-hmm. Like he cited you as one of the inspirations, which is cool.
1: Yeah, those dudes are awesome.
2: So. 16. So then what were you uh, making the music on when you were 16?
1: When you're 16, you're kind of like broke and you have no money. And uh, I was, I remember we had a PC. It was like the Gateway Family PC, I think Mm -hmm. is what we had. I think at the time it was like my main MO was like playing guitar in punk bands and people's garages. Because I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. So it was like those pretty bleak. Kind of gray industrial city, not a lot to do. Winter was super cold. And so it was like that was just what you did. And somewhere along the road, I kind of discovered, I stumbled into Square Pusher and Autechr and Aphex Twin and all the Warp stuff because it started being distributed in the United States. And I remember that music just really struck a chord with me because I was like, this is different. You know, it was like, it was the first time I'd heard anything where I was like, I have no idea how this was made. And uh, that really appealed to me.
2: I think for me, I had a friend who was big in like like Nine Inch Nails and shit and yeah like you're talking about when when we, we didn't have any money because <laughs> I was the same way and so like my music was basically just I would get music from my buddies who had music and I'd make mixtapes with the stuff that they had and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So I remember I think I got introduced to Apex Twin because there was um like a Nine Inch Nails single that had, like, an Aphex Twin track on it.
1: Yeah, I know what you're talking about. It was the, um...
2: That song is awesome, but I don't even remember... I haven't heard it in, like, ten years, but it's that one that goes, like...
1: Yeah, it was the um yeah. Believe that was like the closer? I can't remember. It's been too long. I feel like the album had a black cover, but maybe that's Yeah, no. Album. I know what you, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's <laughs> that's the remix that allegedly he didn't even listen to the source material. He just sort of handed it in and they were like, "This sounds great." And they just put it on the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I uh I was playing guitar and I just had a computer and I remember um at the time I was like super into some PC games like Quake. I was super into Quake. Mm-hmm. And then Quake Two came out, and I was like, "This is great." But Quake Two, Speed International was like oh, the Trent know, Reznor score, right? Trent Reznor did the first one, and then the second one was I don't remember who it was, but there was a kid at the very end who like got somehow got a track into the soundtrack. He didn't do the rest of it; he just did one song. And uh, I remember listening to the music from the game. I was like, this is really great. And because at the time I was like, that's all there was. It was just guitar music. And that was Mm -hmm. all I listened to. And uh, I remember I like emailed him or something. And I was like, hey, you know, this is really cool. He seemed very accessible because he was just like a dude that got his song into Quake 2. So I was like, you know, so I sent him an email and he replied. And he was like, yeah, I made this song with this thing called Impulse Tracker. And I was like, okay. And I looked that up and it was free. You know, you could download it for free and it was music making software. And I was like, uh, it really piqued my curiosity. I was like, all right, this is great. At the time, I didn't know anything about sort of the mod Amiga community that existed online. And this is still kind of early, like, you know, you're doing your searches on AltaVista at this point, And it's, <laughs> and like, uh, you know, so I was, I was really kind of headfirst into that. I thought that was really cool. And I also thought that it was really cool because you had all these different kind of pockets of mod communities where like people were posting their tracks and I was really into I was really active on a thing called Tracks in Space and um, there were a couple really awesome sort of online labels but it was very DIY it was very you know you you just upload your stuff and people could download it and you could actually go into the the files and sort of reverse engineer how people were doing things and so in a way I think that really was a good sort of cornerstone for me getting into synthesis later you know it was like you're sort of getting into this heady kind of because that you know writing an impulse tracker was like a programming language almost it was like like you're going in and, and a lot of that progressed into things like a little sound DJ and, and a lot of things that are used in communities and it's like you know for me I just really like to be able to go in and kind of tweak samples and I think I was using like SoundForge or Edit Pro at that point and you'd go in and you'd sort of edit things and come up with different sounds and then go in and try to learn how to sequence and you know it was a good kind of formative place to start and it was cheap and I could do it for free so.
2: We're gonna sort of cover the whole evolution of the sound here. Okay. So let's talk about Aesthetically Speaking which uh, is from 2003 I think?
1: Yeah it was a a long time ago.
2: (laughs) And so this one was sort of uh, like there's like a lot of like the kind of chiptune sound sort of in there. Yeah. Even though it doesn't really sound like Apex twin, like there was something about it, and I don't know if it was the structure of the beats or some there was something in there where I got that vibe from it.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think so aesthetically speaking was the kind of the byproduct of two things. It was I was in college and I went to school for music. I live in Nashville, Tennessee now, and I moved to Tennessee to go to school. And Tennessee's a weird place. It's kind of a there's a lot of music here. It's a pretty broad scene and um At the time that I I moved, it was like there were a lot of people that were really into experimental music, and I was trying to kind of figure that out and get my head around it. At the time, there was a lot of space for me to kind of just explore different sounds and just learn different things. So it, it kind of became less about warp and just about trying to figure out um, what my voice was. I think it's easy when you're starting out. I get a lot of emails from kids now that are like, you know, how did you make the song? Or can you give me some advice? Or can you listen to my music and give me some pointers? And I, I try to respond to all that stuff, but I always try to tell people the same thing, which is, you know, the best possible thing you can do when you're starting is to kind of Literally lock yourself in a room for like five years and just work, <laughs> which is not the advice they want. I think that a lot of times now it's like you, we live in the YouTube culture where it's like, I want to go online and pull up a video on how to make the best wobble bass in massive, you know, and you can do that, but you're just basically perpetuating a carbon copy culture, you know, where everybody's just doing the same thing. So I think starting there was good for me because I could literally just, you know, wake up one day and just sit down and make whatever I wanted. And aesthetically speaking, it was sort of a weird mishmash of all the things I was listening to or, or, you know, experiencing at that time. And, The other thing that that was, was uh, at the time I was friends with and later lived with a bunch of guys that formed a band called The Protomen. The Protomen are like an 8-bit, they're not 8-bit, they're like a Mega Man-based rock opera, and uh, they're nuts, and they they have a huge following now, but at the time they were just starting out and they were playing shows, and... um, one of the members asked me, you know, I said, hey, we're going to play some shows, our music's a little weird, we don't really know who to have open for us, you know, would you mind doing it? And I had been sending him some music that was maybe less IDM and more sort of akin to, like... I don't. I don't want to say it was like '80s influenced. I would say maybe it was more akin to like Joy Division or something like that. He started pressuring me to play shows with him. That was kind of the beginning. You know, that kind of got the ball rolling. It was like, all right, I want to play this show. So it has to be a thing, and I have to give it a name, and I have to um, figure these songs out. and And that was really the kind of beginning of what became uh, aesthetically speaking.
2: I'm going to play my favorite uh, track off the album but I like all the titles (laughs) of this album so we got Holiday in Rome on a yacht with some girls (laughs) Nothing Can Stop When You've Got Arm Cannons. I think that's my favorite and uh, then there's Designer Chairs and Sofas which is my favorite track so uh, we're going to listen to that this is uh, Designer Chairs and Sofas by Makeup and Vanity Set you. designer chairs and sofas by Makeup and Vanity set off aesthetically speaking from 2003 and I am talking to Makeup and Vanity set right now Matt so we just got the whole story on that album mm-hmm. but uh, do you have any specific sort of stories about like the specific tracks or was it all just sort of is it a blur now I mean that's a crazy time where you're sort of in college
1: and you're just trying to figure out what you're doing drugs drugs <laughs> I think because at the time that I was writing all that music it was sort of just before DFA hit pretty hard you know LCD sound system had not really come out yet but it was about to it was a weird time it was a real fertile time for dance music I remember my freshman year of college Kid A came out and Discovery came out. I love Kid A. Kid is a great record, but it was a weird record. Oh, yeah. I remember I remember being in a dorm room with a bunch of other kids. We were, like, working on music and stuff, and we all kind of stopped because uh, Radiohead was on Saturday Night Live, and they performed Idiotech from... Kid A. I remember watching that and just thinking, like, I've witnessed something
2: here. You know, like this is something that's totally new for me. I used to, uh, like, I don't smoke anymore, mm. uh, but that was at probably like the height time <laughs> of when I still did. And so there was something very mesmerizing about that album, like yeah. being stoned and listening to Kid A was like a whoa, like is a yeah. an experience. But I know, I know it was very divisive, right? Because I had lots of friends who liked uh, Radiohead, yeah. And so obviously that was a, a turning point for the band where it was just like there's you know so there's some friends on one camp that are just like what the fuck is this (laughs) and then uh, there was me I was one of those guys that really dug it the thing about like I was really into OK Computer I love that record well it's a great record too
1: but I love the tone of it like I'm one of those people where I'll listen to a song and I probably could not recite to you any of the lyrics after yeah. <laughs> i hear it but i could probably sing you the melody of the lyrics right um very easily i don't remember any of the words and i, I just that's just the way i've been all, all my life and i think one of the things that really struck me about okay computer is it's a really bleak kind of view on just the world and technology and i think that was just really appealing to me when i was in you know because i was towards the end of high school and it was just like man this is very different you know and the, the message here is very different even from a person that was like a die hard Nine Inch Nails fan it's like it's just super different to me mm. and I really latched onto it and then when Kid A came out it was like for me I, I'm sure there were probably fans of Radiohead that were just really put out by the record but like for me it was the perfect merger of the kind of love that I had of Warp and the love I had of OK Computer, it was like, all right, so now we still have this sort of bleak, <laughs> just this horrible worldview, but at the same time, it's like married to this sort of bleak electronic music production. And I just loved it. I just ate that up. That and Anamnesiac, I thought both of them were fantastic records and I just
2: yeah, yeah, they are
1: really got it. But then at the same time, like Discovery, I was a huge fan of Homework. And when Discovery came out, the Daft Punk record, I was like, I remember I brought it back and we listened to it in the dorm room me and my roommate and i was like i don't know if i like this like i couldn't figure out if it was if i was into it or not and that was one of those records where i listened to it a lot that year and it just steadily kind of grew on
2: me you have just actually raised an interesting point do you have the same patience i i'll tell you i don't okay? <laughs> okay do you have the same patience That you had at one time. Now, I know we didn't have enough money, and the idea of song sharing was only sort of like, you and I are the same age. So, file sharing, okay, I downloaded, like, I I like Depeche Mode. I remember downloading individual Depeche Mode songs off of Kazaa. And I remember that maybe (laughs) at, like, the last year of high school. That that was possible, but it still took like a few hours per song and it had to be like an overnight download and yeah. they'd be fucking, you know, MP3s at 96 kilobytes or whatever. But I had more patience back then and maybe it was because there was less stuff and I was focused on the music I could get. To actually digest an album and really sit with it and do exactly what you just said. I don't think I like this, but I'm going to give it another chance. And I know now I don't do that at all. (laughs) So, like, I love, you know, synthwave music. That's why I do the show. And I I get to meet lots of cool people and they send me awesome music. But my actual sampling of music is, like, (laughs) I will just fucking skim through. To be fair, I get sent a lot of stuff. And so I have to be able to assess a song quickly sure and usually i get a good sense like i can skim through a track and go like okay i don't like the pace of this or i don't like this sound or whatever yeah but that's something that's changed within me is that i don't really sit with music or allow music to grow on me mm-hmm. it literally is all like love at first sight with me now when it comes to music or love at first hearing or whatever like where yeah. the second I hear a song if I, if I love it then I give the rest of that artist's music a chance Sure. and if I don't then it's just sort of like eh ah, you know I'm
1: probably less like that but only because I have this kind of view on music where I feel like everything that I listen to should have some kind of Redeeming quality, if that makes sense, so I should be able to listen to anything and I, th- I adopted this kind of view as a as a person who makes music. I should be able to listen to everything and be able to like there 's something in this that I can deem sort of worth hearing. I know that a lot of people don 't share that I know that I have lots and lots of friends who are incredibly subjective when it comes to music, and i 'm subjective, but I think to a fault as far as the patience. Discovery was an interesting record because it was such a 180 from the sound of homework. It was very different. And I think that was kind of what set me off as far as, you know, I don't know if I could get into this or not. With regards to music now, I think it's harder when you're looking at maybe a genre, right? Like, I think I've gone through this in waves with electronic music. I feel like in the early 2000s when Warp was getting distribution everywhere and you could walk into a record store and find a copy of whatever you wanted and... You know, there was a lot of really fresh, crazy music to be found. But that whole model is gone now. You know, like, nobody's stocking CDs at HMV now. Everything's on Bandcamp or everything is on, you know, whatever service they're using or they're just uploading it straight to Apple Music or Spotify. And it's changed, I think, the perception of music. I think that the one of the things I really kind of grieve for is the uh, loss of... You know, like the guy I work with on all of my records for the artwork, Casper Newbolt, he's a phenomenal designer and he comes up with great, great designs for my records. I literally view his touch on the end kind of part of the record. I send him the record, he responds to it and he creates art. I feel like my records aren't done until he does that. Like that's literally my view. And one of the things that really bums me out is, you know, I'm sitting in my studio right now and I have a big wall to the right of me here that's like full of cds there's like three or four thousand cds on this wall (laughs) and my friend joey comes over and he's like this is like furniture (laughs) like you know you don't need this this is like and he's right you know i don't i i can go on whatever streaming service i want and find all of this crap in a heartbeat that's a kind of a pale comparison to like reaching up and taking the thing off the wall and like looking at the artwork and holding it in your hand, you know, that, that whole thing is really lost. And I think because of that, you know, synth a perfect example. There's so much of it. You know, there's so many kids out there now that are making it. I feel like I kind of stumbled into synth wave. I don't think I really started, you know, making, I don't, I don't think I would listen to something like aesthetically speaking and be like this meets all the tenets of synthwave music.
2: Well, I would say it it doesn't, (laughs) but you definitely, like, the sound sort of turned into it, and then you were one of the people at the beginning of the, like, when the term synthwave was invented, you were making it, essentially, you know what I mean? Whereas,
1: yeah. I think that it's a term I've always felt a little bit kind of, I don't know if I'm at odds with it, but it's just I never felt super comfortable in it. It's broad. Yeah, I get a lot of emails from kids that are like, why aren't you bigger? (laughs) Why aren't you like a bigger deal? And I'm like, I don't, you know, in terms of like the synth wave scene, I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I ever really set out to be bigger. I think I just set out to make the music I needed to make at the time. And to answer your question, like, I think that, um, I do have patience for music in that critically listening to something, you know, there's things I hear nowadays where I'm like, just utterly blown away by it. And, you know, it may be some... Artist that hasn't been like a big deal or, or talked about, you know. But it's like, I'll go on to like synthetics or I'll go on to, you know, wherever. Like, I'll lurk pretty hard and listen to stuff. And I always find it inspirational, even if it's garbage.
2: The phrase lurk yeah. pretty hard is awesome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think, well, no, but it's true though. Like, I, you know, I've had arguments with people that are like, well, if music is shit, it's shit. You shouldn't listen to it. And I'm like, well, I, I disagree. Like, I think even if something's bad, it's still is kind of a good example of like well you know clearly I don't want to do that but then all at the same time like it just make pushes me harder you know to make different things or new things or whatever so I, I'm patient in that I will critically listen to just about anything and be like yeah I like this or no I don't you know I don't get super crazy about it but I also try to give everything it's fair shake you know I get a lot of music sent to me from kids that are like what do you think about this and I'll listen to it and I'll, I'll send them notes like I don't care because I think at, at one point I was there Mm -hmm. and I don't think I really had the gall to like email somebody and be like hey dude what do you think about this you know like
2: what about that kid from Quake (laughs) exactly (laughs) well
1: exactly that's like the probably the one instance that I ever (laughs) did that and you know and there that's that's a good example because it like you know he put me on Impulse Tracker and the rest is history so I always I always try to pay attention to kids and listen to their stuff and send them notes and just be like hey you know I like this this is good or like you could do this a little differently or you know just try to push them and provoke them into like doing something or looking at something a little differently.
2: I feel like from my point of view, I feel like I have to remain like unbiased. So a lot of the times when people send me stuff, I just go like, obviously they're sending it to me because they want me to play it. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of times I just won't really say anything, you know, like I'll just be like, <laughs> yeah, I'll listen. Like, that's all I say. Not yeah. like a standard thing. I write like, thanks for the link. I'll check it out. Yeah. And then if I like it, I'll end up playing it on the show because I don't, I've had weird interactions with people when I was honest. Yeah. And I've decided not to do that anymore, so either I'm positive... And I just, you know, like that if you got nothing good to say kind of thing, like if I've yeah. got good things to say, I'm very happy to tell people that their music's good or that I see potential in it. And if it's not, I'm just kind of like, yeah, thanks for sending me stuff. So <laughs> I was, I was sending
1: you sort of like a packet of music and I was thinking, man, you have like a sweet deal. People just send you music all the time and you get to listen to this music you like and you don't really, you don't have to pay for it. <laughs> everybody just, everybody just sends you stuff.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a, a definitely... And a perk, I'm not gonna lie. Sure, sure.
1: No, I think what's cool about your show is there's not a lot of people doing this, and I think that. It's pretty rad that you're taking time to sort of shine a light on stuff and say, hey, I like this. This is cool. Pay attention to this, you know?
2: I think it it helps. Like, the the only way that I'm going to maintain passion for having a conversation with somebody is if I like what they're doing. I actually can't fake it, and I can't do that in real life. Like, I'm a shitty person to be around if you take me to something that sucks. Like, if (laughs) if I'm, uh, like, invited to a wedding I don't want to go to or whatever, like, I can't pretend (laughs) like i won't be like a sourpuss but i'm also just kind of like ah this sucks like you know you know we all know we don't and and then i start being like the voice of the people who don't want to be there yeah i just gravitate towards the people who also clearly don't want to be a part of this event and then just make sarcastic jokes until we i still try and have a good time with those people does this happen often to you Well, I got a kid, right? So now I got to go to like, uh, you know, like stupid performances and things. That's true, yeah. I mean, it's great when your kid's doing the performance. Yeah. But then if you have to sit there and watch like fucking, you know, like a hundred other kindergarten students sing some shitty song, it's like, you
1: know. <laughs> you should do a podcast where you uh, invite your child's peers. And then you critique their work.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't. I like, guess. Like, although that stuff does make me laugh. But yeah. uh, I'm not. But that a, would be horrible. Yeah. I'm not. <laughs> An hour of crying. <laughs> Anyways, listen, we got to listen okay. to some songs. Usually, I try and give nice little seven minute breaks between tracks. Okay. But I'm finding this conversation really engaging, and I've been missing my marks. Okay. So. <laughs> So we're gonna listen to another track here And this was a single, it was called uh, Roman numeral MCMLXXXII Or 1982 Do you like to say 1982 or do you like to say all those Letters? I'm cool both ways I like that you did all the letters, that's kind of impressive (laughs) (laughs) So this is 1982 By Makeup and Vanity Set 1982 by Makeup and Vanity Set, and I'm here with Matt right now. So how are you doing? I'm good, man. Talk to me about that track.
1: That track was a sort of weird... It kind of lived between three different records. It was Charles Park 3. So I made Charles Park 3, and I made a record called Never Let Go, and then I made 8888, and it was kind of like it it sort of lived closer to 88 but it didn't fit on that record so i just sort of released it on its own just as its own thing
2: okay explain to me what charles park is cuz there's like a trilogy of charles park albums yeah and like i was listening to them but i i feel like i didn't quite grasp what the thing was <laughs> so it's it's a soundtrack to something that doesn't exist Correct. Because I was worried that it was like a short film that I was supposed to see. and
1: Yeah, so post-aesthetically speaking, I finished school and I moved to Nashville proper. I was living in the city and working. Why
2: Nashville? I'm not great on my geography of the state, so you were in Ohio.
1: But yeah, I was in Ohio. I went to Nashville for school. Well, I went to just outside Nashville for school, and then I moved into the city when I finished and didn't feel like leaving, um, and I had a lot of friends that were there, and the proto men were kind of doing their thing, and so we all got a house in Nashville. We lived in this big, crazy house that we called ThunderCon. That was the name of it. We all just worked on music. They were kind of writing their first record, or I think their first record had come out. They were working on the second record. I was sort of figuring out what I wanted to do. I was still playing shows with them, and we were all just kind of one big happy family. I was watching a lot of kind of the Giallo horror films of like Argento and um, Romero Got really into things like Goblin, just that whole kind of scene. And so I was starting to kind of write music that felt more akin to like horror films of that era. And things like Suspiria. And uh, there's a film called Demons. And uh, there's just a ton of things. Dawn of the Dead. The original Dawn of the Dead was a big touchstone for that stuff. This is kind of way before the whole zombie thing took hold. But it was like... I don't think I was really attracted to the zombies as much as I was attracted to the tone of it. I think the thing that I really loved was... If you watch a movie like Halloween, I think there's a lot of people that are really into the slasher element of Halloween. I love the dark street right there's a shot towards I think it's like middle middle of the film maybe towards the end where Carpenter's got the camera in the street and there's kind of leaves blowing and you see from a distance like Michael Myers is just kind of chilling in like a he's like in a hedge or something (laughs) (laughs) and um but I love the idea of, like, the kind of stillness of that. I firmly believe, like, if you didn't have a film like Halloween, you wouldn't have a film like Terminator, the unstoppable force. Mm-hmm. And you know, for a long time, Halloween was, like, the biggest independent film ever made. And it was, obviously, John Carpenter had an extremely distinct sound that he uh, employed in his films. And that was really kind of instrumental to me. I was really into that. And so I was really aiming less for, like, people stabbing people and more for um, just that idea of like something lurking around the corner creeping on you
2: hardcore lurking
1: hardcore lurking around the corner
2: <laughs> I like the the description of Charles Park which is recorded with synthesizers and tape decks on computers and cassette tapes at night <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh whenever it's I-
1: extremely accurate though that's the <laughs> that's the thing like that's that is not a lie so Charles Park was formative for me in that it was the very beginning of of synthesizers for me. So like aesthetically speaking was primarily made, I think I had one synth at that time. I had a Nordlead 2X, which was a really awesome synth that I wish I still had. I sold it a few years ago, but like I wasn't really gunning for anything specific. It was like, oh, this is a cool synth. I'll just use this. When I wrote Charles Park, that was the first time I ever had a Moog. I had a Moog Prodigy. You know, I really started digging deep into kind of older drum machines, things like Lindrum, just trying to kind of get that certain feel. So the whole kind of crux of that album was a building block for things later on down the road.
2: So, like, whenever you feel like this need to create horror music, it becomes a... Like a Charles Park album? Probably. I think at the time it was you know, I made the first one
1: and then I decided to just go back to it and made a second one. The second one was really influenced by, there was a record called The Dead Sea by a a guy called Zela. uh, X-E-L-A. And he had a record that was essentially, it's a really weird dark atmospheric record, but it was, you know, the cover art is essentially like these undead people coming out of the water and there's like a, a vessel like a ship or something so it's sort of imagine like a bunch of zombies coming out of the water and attacking a boat that's like sailing across the ocean to the like New Americas or something it was something like that and you know I thought that was a really interesting idea the second record was definitely more sort of zombie intensive and the third record was the first record I made that was sort of based off of actual life experience my wife and I, Bought a house and moved, and we were kind of had been living in the house for a few months. And we were um, it's kind of a long story, but we were in a pretty rough, pretty terrible car accident. And I had this real sense uh, without sounding like cliche about it, but I had this sense the guy who sort of ran us off the road left, he didn't stay. And uh, I had this real kind of emotional reaction to that, you know, because my wife was like deeply traumatized by it. And I just had this real sense of like vigilantism wash over me, you know, not real true. Like I wasn't really going to go out and do anything crazy, but I felt like I was like, man, I feel really helpless. And Charles Park three was sort of completely born out of that. It was like, I'm gonna make another one of these records, and I kind of envisioned it to be the last one. It felt like making a trilogy would be a cool thing to do. I think if you listen to all three records, Charles Park 3 is definitely the darkest, and there's a lot of car sounds on it. I think it's definitely like it just really had that sense of kind of a dark atmosphere.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You needed to exercise some demons. I think so. I
1: think that's really true. And also, Charles Park 3 was the first record I made that had an extensive use of Foley. Up until that point, I had not made records that had a lot of like interstitial sound, which has since kind of become a thing that I do yeah. on a lot of records.
2: Well, let's listen to a track. So this was one I thought was really cool. This is from Charles Park 3, and this was a track called Search the Night. Search the Night by Makeup and Vanity Set off Charles Park 3. So, but you guys are okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we okay. good. Like, so what happened exactly? <laughs> like, some dude was just a prick?
1: No, we were, uh, we were driving on the interstate. This guy was, like, sort of, yeah, exactly that. The guy was sort of a jerk, and my wife tried to get over, and he decided to go around us, and, like in doing that sort of cut us off my wife was driving a driving the car and it was a uh, pathfinder it was a SUV and we rolled like six or seven times It's one of those things where i know if you've ever been in a traumatic car accident but like the way that you see traumatic car accidents depicted on television is exactly accurate like it it happens exactly like like it was like I watched the windshield sort of disappear into like a spider web and like i remember just the car rolling and thinking like we're gonna die like we're not gonna live through this and it was it was pretty rough i remember we we all crawled out through the sunroof but somehow we were cool. Everything was fine. We didn't get hurt, which I guess is a testament. Go Nissan. But, uh... <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I was in a, like, a spin-out, because we, obviously it snows here. Yeah. And uh, we get uh, black ice. Nice. Which yeah. is when the road looks fine, but it's actually completely slick. Yeah. And I remember, I don't know, I think it was, like, late high school, and a buddy was just driving in a van, and it was, like, packed. I think there's like, six of us in there, and then just did the turn. And you go just slightly too fast and turn on black ice and all of a sudden it was just this weird like, uh-oh, like, and he said that out loud like, whoa, and then all yeah. of a sudden we just spun and just spun. We didn't flip, yeah. but we like spun in circles and then flew into the ditch. And it's it was strange, but it sort of played more like slow motion. Like it was just sort of, what yeah. is this? And we're lucky because, you know, sometimes those sorts of accidents are like you spin and you're fine, but then a car comes around the corner. Hits you. And it's yeah. you. So we were lucky that we just flew into some snow. It's weird how stuff like that
1: is always like a slow because ours was like that too it was very slow motion it was like okay this is happening you know it was like I remember that feeling of like the wheels were definitely not on the ground you know in a way that was safe and it was like alright you know we're gonna this thing's gonna happen and uh yeah it was definitely it was a bit scary but I, I know all about black ice
2: growing up in Ohio it was like you're in
1: Toronto proper yes yeah yeah, okay. yeah yeah
2: so actually the the snow isn't as bad here because the city is protected by a dome of pollution <laughs> Like all sort of major cities. So like I come from a small town that's a few hours away from the city and so basically you drive out of Toronto and for like an hour out of the city all of a sudden just fucking snow banks and everything. Yeah. It's crazy. Weather's crazy man <laughs> I guess talking about soundtracks, I mean these Charles Park ones were for things that that you know weren't real. Yeah. But then uh, you've done so many scores for some short films, and I did I did my homework and I watched all the ones you sent me. Cool, and uh, it was really cool actually because I didn't know you scored Manifold, yeah, directed by uh, Pilot Priest or Anthony Scott Burns as he's called, and I never even knew that it was you that scored it. I just assumed it was him that scored it. Yeah, well, I mean he reached out to me, and at the time he reached out to me, I had seen I. I'd been
1: familiar with his stuff. I was familiar with his record, and I was familiar with some of the MTV kind of bumper promos that he had made. I had the same thought. I was like, why do you need me? Like, you're very good <laughs> at making music, and we had a long chat one day on Skype, you know, it was an awesome conversation, it was just like, I think we talked for like three hours or something, it was just like about film, you know, because he's like encyclopedic in his brain Yes. about film, and I you know, I wanted to go to film school originally, so I'm a huge film person and we just had a super long chat, uh, and it was really clear that we were on a similar wavelength about it, and I felt comfortable working on it with him, I was really humbled that he wanted me to do it, because like I said, like, original motion picture soundtrack is... It's almost like you listen to that record and you're like, this guy made a deal with the devil. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it is really good. It's just sort of like riff after riff after... Like, that thing is just an endless string of motifs and they're all amazing. And you're like, wow.
2: And the fact that that could have been divided yeah. over, like, three or four... Like, the f- he's got 30 fucking songs and they're, like, all good? <laughs>
1: they're all good, yeah. And, yeah. But I think the thing that was also daunting about that was I had scored one film before I did A Manifold, and... The two experiences were very different. Every experience that I have with a director is different. But with Anthony, what was unique about it was he, because he's a musician, he's very musically, like he speaks a musical language, which I think is almost always the, the main barrier when you're dealing with working with a director. And so he could kind of look at his film and say, OK, so like right here, I want that bass sound from the thing. Right. <laughs> and you're kind of like, all right, like it's a very specific kind of reference and you realize very quickly, like you know he expects to hear the bass from the thing you know so you're sort of like all right, and you have very specific things and so there were were moments in it where he was very emotionally kind of in tune with what he wanted but I think to say that also like he gave me a ton of freedom like I was able to kind of go into that and and come up
2: with things since he he knows as a filmmaker and he's a clever guy so Mm -hmm. that the directions he gave you when they were specific were like technical yeah sure I mean I think
1: he understood emotionally what he was going for that goes a long way I mean it's not to say that other directors don't I think that he could do it the, the, the difference was he could speak to me in a musical way about it right? and right. I think that that was a real bonus and so like when his stuff started blowing up and he's now you know making films and in like legit films I, it's really not surprising to me because he's huge on vision you know and I think that that's a real key like strong component for a director to do well it's like they have to know what their vision is and what they want and I think he's really good at that
2: yeah, yeah. Well, well, it comes across. I mean, like it's a really good short and like actually all the stuff he's made is is really cool. Um but since we are uh talking about Manifold, we might as well listen to a song from the Manifold soundtrack. So here is Closed Loop by Makeup and Vanity Set. Was closed loop by makeup and vanity set from the manifold soundtrack and um now we were just talking about scoring and stuff and uh i found it interesting because i mean this is like super small scale compared to that mm-hmm. but when i was like i'm still trying to make this like science fiction robot show thing yeah and uh, I know I got to uh, ogre to, he helped out and scored a little scene for me. Yeah. And for me, I spoke in terms of just emotional beats. Mm-hmm. It was all up to him as to, you know, the instrumentation and all that stuff to reach those things. I was very specific on like, all right, this beat is sad this beat is hopeful, this beat is whatever, in, in like, the short span of, like, a minute, because I tried to sort of reach a bunch of different, like, <laughs> different yeah. heights emotionally, right? Like, I wanted to pack a bunch in. Yeah. Sometimes I feel weird, you know, giving technical directions when I'm not super proficient musically. Yeah. Like, obviously, if I didn't like an instrument, you know what I mean? It would just be like, oh, I don't I don't care for that pad sound or, you know, this, this lead melody is off or whatever, and yeah. I might hum a tune or play a tune, you know? But for the most part, when someone gets it, you know, when you have a conversation with someone and you're in the zone as you have just said that you guys were in the same zone so you like you just kind of know yeah we were were in the zone and that's a cool place to be (laughs) no I think that uh, you're absolutely right I think
1: I think somebody like Ogre and as a quick aside, like, how good is that record that they just put out? Like, him in Dallas? The, oh, yeah. Oh, man, it's amazing.
2: You know how long they sat on that fucking thing?
1: For a long... Well, I mean, I had sort of... I had a sneak peek of it a really long time ago because of my connections with Dallas, I guess, and telefuture. the Future. But, like, yeah, it's just... It's
2: unbelievable. Like, it's just so good. You <laughs> know, it's really good. I'm impressed. The, the thing that always impresses me about uh, uh, Ogre and Dallas, but almost especially Ogre, because he can sit on an album album (laughs) for so long and he'll send them to me like we chat daily like and he sent me that 2001 thing like a year and a half ago or something a year ago because it was in the summertime I remember screening the movie with the synced up soundtrack and going oh I can't wait till people can hear this thing and then a year and then the same with like his album Calico Noir which I listened to and I was like using it as inspiration as I built the robot costumes for the scene that I shot a year ago and he just released that one like a month ago I'm like how do you (laughs) like for me to get that satisfaction when you know you create something i need like if it's finished i won't fucking sit on it yeah. like i can't i just have to it has to be out there and people have to see it like when i um i made that uh like a music video for droid bishop's song yeah yeah i love that and uh, thank you and uh, uh but i made it and i remember i think at the time i don't know if droid bishop still is with um 80s girlfriend 80s girlfriend is that the fucking name <laughs> I have stickers and everything. Anyway, he had a label. Yeah. And I remember the the dude from the label said, uh, oh, do you want to wait and I'll tell some blogs and we can premiere it properly kind of thing. Yeah. And I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Like, sorry, dude. It's finished and I'm happy with it and I want people to see it like now. Yeah. And I wouldn't wait. I didn't care. Like, I didn't want it debuted. I didn't want anything. I was like, I needed to put it out there immediately. It's really hard. I think that it's a tough balance because
1: you're... When you're done, you're like, I'm done. I want to get this out there, you know? And at the same time, there's a lot of other people that are like, well... And I think that's what's really helpful. I have a lot of people now who are sort of pushing me going, you should get like a manager or something because I have a lot of projects that are sort of going and I'm the least PR minded person ever when it comes to my own stuff. And so I think you need a person that will act as a buffer that will help you. And I think Steve has done that to a large extent, has kind of kept that weight off of me. And the same can be said of Michael Eads with YK Records, like, you know, they've both helped me tremendously. Like, I think the two closest confidants I have musically are not musicians, you know. I send stuff to them and I can trust their in, their impulse and their insight because they're not going to bullshit me and... Neither one of them are musicians. Uh, They're creative people, but they're just, you know, they're going to send me notes and tell me if something really sucks. And I respect that and I need that. And I think that there's something to be said for waiting. But a year is a fucking long time. A year is a really long time. But but Ogre and Dallas both know what they're doing. You know, like I think, um, and they're both busy guys, you know, like I just can't. I love Dallas Campbell. I think that that dude is phenomenal. He's one of my favorite producers. He's a cool guy. Really cool guy. And, you know, he and I will email every once in a while. And I think, uh, you know, I love I love his Instagram where he posts little, like, clips of him just, like, doing whatever. tweaking knobs. <laughs> yeah, it's great because it's just, like, that's what it is. You know, you're just sort of screwing around and seeing what happens. And, you know, that last uh, record he put out, City One, that thing's mm-hmm. phenomenal. Like, yeah. I can feel what they're kind of looking at there, too. Like, because, you know, I had a ton ton of projects in the kind of irons in the fire and they all sort of landed at the same time so i ended up having wave hymnal came out with data airlines and then um turned right around had hit tv and then turned right around and had brigador i was like and it wasn't really planned that they would all come out like that it was just sort of hey all this stuff is coming out in a row like this and yeah yeah. and and all in every case like those projects you know i think wave hymnal i had probably the more control over because it was an actual release
2: but they just happened to land that Way so well. Talk to me about eighty eight eighty eight, which was a short film that you scored. Mm-hmm. Now this was just a. Uh, it was a film about a girl who uh, drinks water out of a jar and straps herself to a bed. Is that accurate? <laughs> That's the best synopsis I've ever heard of that film.
1: <laughs> it's good because no, it's a weird film because you watch it or you send it to people and they're like, "Man, I feel like everybody that watched it would be like." like she was really going to do something terrible to herself like she was going to kill herself or something horrible and like no one really saw this sort of
2: light through the window kind of I don't think anybody was really expecting that you know what I thought it. yeah <laughs> werewolf <laughs> but then the thing that was holding it back was like but then they're gonna have to do werewolf effects yeah that's true they're not gonna do that so but mind you that director dude yeah I mean they're clever like it looks good like the effects that are there are well done and it was a it was a good little short man it's creepy yeah now the film was about 14 minutes long yeah and your album is 40 minutes yeah so what's uh, what's with the discrepancy here? Was that like stuff that was inspired by it? Was it music that didn't make the cut? So eighty eight and a lot of a lot of the stuff that I released that's tied to a film works this way.
1: Um, Joey, the director, Joey Chegulin and Sean Wilson. Uh, Sean Wilson was a writer, co writer, and a producer. They approached me. They're local in Nashville, and they said we really like to license a song from uh, Never Let Go for the end credits. And I said okay, that's cool, and we started talking about it. Joey was like, we kind of hit it off and we had a lot in common and we talked about film and Joey was like, would you? what would you think about, He, I always kid him about this because he said, "You know, how would you feel about doing some light scoring? And I was like, okay. So I, I had never scored anything at that point and um, just seemed like a cool obstacle. And he kind of sent it to me and he had temped the entire film with the music from Drive, the kind of ethereal music that Cliff Martinez did. So I just sent him a score that was essentially like a ticker tape. It was like, not a ticker tape, but like a, a complete duplicate of that And he's like, no, 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 I don't want this. He's like, I want it to be darker. Go darker. So I just kept doing these passes, and I kept watching this film over and over and over again. And um, each pass got darker. By the end, I was sort of like, I had watched this movie like a million times. And I (laughs) I had been making the music darker and darker for Joey. And so we finally landed to where he was happy, and I was happy. And we had a good, great working relationship. It was awesome. My wife and I, like towards the end of the process, he decided that uh, A New Dawn, that was the track from Never Let Go that he was going to use, he said, um, I don't think this is going to work. You know, see if there's something you want to write for the end credits. So my wife and I went to the um, the mountains, just kind of were like getting away for, for a weekend. And I remember I woke up one morning, it was super early, and I kind of went downstairs and I laid on the couch and I had my laptop and um, I just wrote... What would end up becoming a glowing light? I kind of finished it. It didn't take long to make the track. I mean, it was super quick. I sent it to him kind of a week after that, when I'd kind of listened to it and sat with it and felt like this was, you know, this was okay. And um, he was like, "This is it." I remember he, like, emailed me back immediately and was like, this is my song. You're not allowed to do anything with it. Like, we're going to use this for the end credits. <laughs> and, um, and so I just kept working. I just kept going. And I think where it, where it sort of branched off from was I just kept thinking about that girl in the film. Uh, her name's uh, Val in the film. But the actress's name is Rachel. And I just kept thinking about her, and I kept thinking about what happens when the end of the movie. Like, what happens when so the movie ends? What happens? And the way I envisioned it was... I pictured her in, like, a Ripley-type scenario where she ends up having to sort of defend the immediate... So it was, like, picture sort of the the character of Ripley in the environment of, like, Evil Dead 2. Right. So, like, the context of the house, and she's, like, essentially defending herself and possibly others from aliens. And... I just sort of envision this like heroic battle that she goes into. And it's funny because Joey and Sean wrote a feature length version of 88 that was nothing like what I had envisioned with the record. Mm-hmm. But the record just kind of fell out of me and it just sort of happened very sequentially. I, I, don't, I think I wrote the record in order that it was released in and it just was a very, I hate the word organic, but it was a very organic thing that just sort of came together. You know, I think to date it's still one of the more, popular things that i made it just happened very quickly and it was the result of literally watching that film a million times well talk to me
2: about the track homecoming yeah because that was like a vocal track yeah which so was that... uh, interesting so actually we're gonna listen to it okay and then we'll uh, we'll talk about it so uh, this is uh, homecoming featuring jasmine cassett by makeup and vanity set
3: i
2: uh, featuring Jasmine Cassett uh, by Makeup and Vanity Set. And I am here with Makeup and Vanity Set right now. Matthew, or Matt, sorry, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to me about that track because that was like a vocal one. So Jasmine is a
1: friend. I've known her for a super long time. All like the whole core of people that I knew in Nashville. She was part of that. And um, I remember I went to Nashville and played a show So she, Jasmine does her own thing. Like She has her own kind of, she writes her own music and is super talented and just writes a ton of different stuff and is really, really talented. We were playing a show together, and after the show was over, I was kind of like loading out, and she was sitting outside, and she was like eating food with somebody from her band, and and I was just kind of talking to her, and she was like, you know, we should really work on something sometime. That would be really cool. And um, I was like, yeah, we should. And I just kind of was like... You know, not thinking that that would ever happen, but thinking like, you know, that would be kind of neat. I remember when '88 was kind of, I had a, a loose arrangement of the tracks. I just kept thinking like that track really could use vocals and would work well with vocals and it's specifically like a female vocal. And so I reached out to her and I sent her the track and she was super into it. And wrote some lyrics and kind of you know the thing that's awesome about Jasmine is that she's really talented in that I can like with Homecoming I just sent her the song like I didn't say like write the lyrics about this or that or whatever she just kind of came up with that stuff and every collaboration we've ever had has been that way it's been very much like I think with Wilderness you know I sent her tracks with that one and I had a specific thought in mind for that but she still just wrote all the lyrics like I didn't say like you have to sing this or, or touch on these things so the track really came together through I think through her I think that the reason that that track came together so well was because of what she did I mean I don't think if you listen to that track on it's own without the vocal it's kind of you know it's just kind of like eh <laughs> right. I think her, her vocals really made that work. What is the Final Fire? The Final Fire is a sort of 8-bit, like an EP that I made, and to be honest, it was like I had, at the time, I was using a ton of hardware, so I wasn't really hard into software like I had been, and um, I wrote a bunch of tracks using an MPC-1000, which is a sampler, and I ended up mastering the whole record through the MPC, which is why it sounds so blown out and crazy. I had played a show with... Um, Onomatoguchi um, was doing their, um, 8-bit, I can't think of the name of it, it was like 8-bit revival or 8-bit... I don't remember the exact exact name of the tour, but it was, like, Them and Infinity Shred and Saber Pulse and Henry Holm Suite. So it was, like, a really amazing bill. And they came through Nashville, and I opened for that show. I think it was me, and I think Rainbow Dragon Eyes played with us. And it was, like, that show was the best. It was awesome. But um, I got to know those, those guys pretty well, and I ended up remixing a track for Anamaguchi, and it was, like, you know, this was a long time ago. But they... Um, you know, it was like I was kind of in that world, and so I decided to just make a handful of tracks that just really fit that kind of hella sample drums and like super sam- like I was taking eight bit sort of Game Boy sounds and themes and sampling those, and then like just making it sound as gnarly as humanly possible. And the result was the Final Fire. And the the artwork for that is meant to be like a sister piece to uh, I did an eight bit remix of the first protoman record. Protomen have uh, their first record was called Act One and I remixed that completely as like an 8-bit Nintendo kind of feel and the cover art for that was done by this uh, 8-bit artist named Jalonso and he did the artwork for Final Fire so they're sort of meant to kind of go hand in hand
2: well moving forward in time here talk to me about 725-2148 how do you say this one? (laughs) 725 2148. 725 2148. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to play my favorite track on this thing, okay. which was uh, Quadra 4, or the Roman numeral IV. So let's listen to this track. This is uh, Quadra 4 by Makeup and Vanity Set. That was Quadra 4 by Makeup and Vanity Set, and we are chatting right now. So talk to me about this album. That EP was sort of like an icebreaker for me. I think 88 had finished.
1: 88 did so much better than I ever had expected. Like, I feel like people really responded to that record, and... At that time, I mean, you were talking about sort of the formation of Synthwave as a genre. I feel like that was when things started to really kind of come together. It just did really well. And that was the first record I did with Telefuture. That was when Steve kind of reached out to me and said he was part of a a net label called Pause that was really successful and really amazing. And he said, you know, I'd really like to uh, start this label kind of with this more synth friendly music in mind. And he was really keen to do a trilogy for Charles Park. He wanted to do like a compendium. And at the time, I was really not into that idea. I don't, I don't really remember why I just was like, nah, you know, and I was like, but I just finished this other record and I just sent it to him and it was 88 and he was like, this is great. We'll just release this. And so that was, that was really in a way sort of the beginning of me being, I think firmly planted in that genre. I think it was the beginning of Telefuture, and, you know, it was kind of a really fertile time. So it was like moving from that, like, what are you going to do now? And, um, There was a lot of crazy life stuff that was going on for me. I had um, uh, somebody very close to me that was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And uh, I was very shaken by that and just really kind of unsure of what was going on and how I was gonna deal with that. And I just had in my mind this idea, you know, when you deal with cancer, you're around people that have cancer. One of the things that's really tricky is just managing, you know, when you're in the room with them, and you're sort of looking around and you see all of this machinery and equipment, all this stuff, and it's all there and it's all designed to save them. But you know that that person that you're there with is going to die, like the, it's terminal, you know, so you're going through all these things and you're, you're there to try to sort of prolong and extend life but you're looking at all this stuff and you're thinking like all of this stuff here is designed to save you, but it won't, Right. you know, and for all the technology that we can create, like it's not going to keep you here. And I just started thinking about that a lot. And I started having this um, feeling, what if you could, like, what if you could take the idea, the memory that you have of a person and use that to sort of recreate them so in essence it was the, the concept was if you had the ability if you had a brother and a sister and the sister was dying and the brother took the memories that he had of the sister and all of the data that he had and all the information that he collected, and he sort of implanted it into the brain of a essentially a functioning kind of clone, mm-hmm. a recreation of it, mechanical. What if you did that, and what would it be like, and how would it work, and would it be very similar, would it have the same traits... Would it be able to then kind of stand the test of time and and live on? That's really where that EP came from. That was sort of the building blocks. That EP was the first step into what became Wilderness. You know, Wilderness was... Designed to be me processing my grief. Uh, You know, I started Wilderness and wrote a good chunk of it, and then this person died, and I took a break and couldn't really work on it for a while, and then I came back to it. And it was this idea that one of the things uh, that's really heavy about cancer is that when the person does pass away you I kept trying to remember them and it was like the memories that I had were all tainted by cancer right and I kept I kept thinking like if if you're trying to recreate a person and your memories are all sort of tainted by that or tainted by something you know that person obviously could never be what you remembered exactly it would always be different it would always it would never be that person and then the other thing is you know if that person was supposed to not be there anymore like if it's the reason if that person is supposed to be gone. If that person did end end up living on as sort of a recreation of a memory, you know, would they resent it? Would they grow to be lonely? Would they grow to be, you know, and that was kind of the idea that the grand scheme of wilderness was the first half was the brother and the sister trying to just survive. And the second half was the brother is gone and the sister lives on and the sister is like, maybe I don't want to be here anymore.
2: Well, it's a really interesting idea. I'm wondering now how this connects to the short film Mm -hmm. do you pronounce it eidolon yeah
1: so joey was kind of with me joey and i have continued to work together since 88 and um he's done all the video stuff for all the releases he did all the promos for 88 he did all the um you know anytime we've ever worked on anything he's kind of done promos and i've continued to work with him closely and um You know, when I was developing Wilderness and I had a concept, he was really engaged with the first half. He thought, I think it's a really interesting concept. It's a human story where the brother is trying to keep the sister alive and just can't, you know. And he thought it was actually a really interesting kind of Device mm-hmm. where you're sort of involved in a narrative where you're slowly starting to realize that the sister is just recreations. She's not the actual sister. And that was kind of, I think, the building blocks of Idolon. And I had the concept of it, but I really, it was Joey and uh, Daniel Shepard, the writer, who sort of fleshed it out. And it was one of those things where the record was such a heavy thing for me to work on that... I was really glad to let him take it. Like I wanted him to kind of take it and do his own thing with it. So it's it's tied to the record, but it's kind of the inverse of the relationship with 88 where he made a film and I reacted to it with a record. I made a record and he reacted to it with a film. That's cool. It was an interesting project. I mean, it was a lot of work making that record and it was a lot of work for him making that film. But it's kind of weird. Like we made it and we're kind of like, that's over. And then, and then like recently he screened it. Uh, there was a, a shorts kind of a night where they screened a bunch of short films here locally and he went to that and I didn't go because I'm always like I don't know I'm just cagey about that stuff and I was just sort of like you know I, I sent him a, a text the next day and I was like how'd it go and he's like it was kind of interesting. He's like just watching it again after so long and a group, like, with a group of people in a room like he's like it's pretty good. I'm sure you feel that like you make a, you work with film and it's like you make something and you're sort of like
2: I really hope this isn't shit. I get no nervous like i'm bad at being in a public like if i make something putting things online is great yeah. you know what i mean it's easy and uh you know you still get a lot of feedback but you don't have to you know watch people watching your thing but it's tricky when what you're making is serious yeah because then it's hard to gauge like in in with on, it's very much about this atmosphere and i watched it and i I, I, when it was over, I was sort of like, do I understand this? You know, it's one of those. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. you know, 8888, I understand it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just, okay, I get what's happening here. Yeah. Uh, the other one, I'm like, okay, I sort of get it. Like, the girl's coming back, and and there's this dude in a suit, and there's some some sort of ominous alien giant thing in the background, which looked cool. How good was that dude in the suit, by the way? He was... It was great. <laughs> like, the no, the, the, it's well made. Yeah. But I definitely, when it was over, I'm like do I fully understand it? But at the same time, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. You know, it's how I felt when I watched 2001. Like I didn't understand it, but I thought it was awesome. I think
1: in the case of wilderness and idol on both, like when that record came out, it's a pretty crazy leap to go from 88 to wilderness. I mean, I think if you're listening to the records that I've made, you're going, all right, you know, this is different. It's darker. It's There's a lot less drums.
2: Yeah, I noticed it was uh, a little lighter on percussion. And I, I always find it difficult playing tracks from these types of albums because you know atmospheric songs tend to sound sort of out of place you know unlike a radio show yeah but there are some more sort of upbeat tracks on uh, the album including remember uh featuring some of your old uh, proto men buddies so let's uh, listen to that this is remember by makeup and vanity set a started. to
0: the end
2: And that was Remember by Makeup and Vanity Set featuring Raoul Panther and Gambler Kirk Douglas of the Proto Men. Uh, so you were talking before about what the reaction must have been like uh, for people who follow your music because the sudden change in tone from your last album. There's a
1: really great, I love YouTube comments because YouTube comments are like lowest common denominator of humanity most of the time. But people are very, very honest on YouTube. So I think somebody posted the entire record on YouTube and somebody was just like you know the first track and were like where's the drop like where's the drums where do the drums? I don't understand it builds and there's no drums you know I think the point of the record is like it was it's an expression of grief and yes. it's and it's dark and it's very synth heavy yeah but where's the drop where's the drop yeah. and you know I think it at a certain point you have to I like agonized over that record cuz I was like man I I just don't I don't think people are going to like it. And I wasn't sure if that mattered to me. You know, I think on some level, creatively, you want people to understand what you're doing. But I think, you know, and I think that was something that Joey really wrestled with, was like, okay, so we can't make something that makes no sense. You know, he needed closure. Like it had to have a process to it. It had to have a linear kind of narrative arc to it. And wilderness... Gets you just close enough to where you have enough pieces, but it doesn't really give it away. And I mean, I still make a point to not talk about it in detail, the personal stuff, because it's not important to it. I think that the reality is, it's a it's a record that was a, important to me to process the grief. And two things that are really interesting: Joey made a film that. perfectly nailed what I felt when I watched it there are things that he did in that film that are like a perfect analog for what happened to me in my life Right, and he had no knowledge of that and the other thing was when I sent the tracks that would become Hand in Hand and Adolescence to Jasmine the lyrics that she wrote in those songs are crushing because they are 100% accurate to the things that i felt and i remember when she sent me the scratch vocals and i put them in the tracks the first time my wife was in the room and she just she cried she was just like i can't believe this like it's exactly right you know were they also like familiar with your friend no no, and that's the thing. Like when I sent the the thing to Jasmine, I just explained to her what it was. I, I gave her a loose explanation, but she didn't know these people personally. She just and that and that's Jasmine's gift. I mean, she just understood. I, I gave her the core emotion, and she just nailed it. And you know, we ended up using the track hand in hand at the end of Eidolon and we actually just use it a cappella. So when it's when she comes in, it's just her dry, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just doing her thing, and we kind of bring the the track in underneath it. And I I thought it worked great. It's just a, another example of like when when you're just doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing the things just fall in place and a lot of the projects i've been lucky enough to work on have been that way 88 was that way manifold was that way you know working on wilderness and Eidolon was that way it's like it just these things just you just kind of go with your gut and you do the thing that feels right. And I wasn't sure if it was going to be the right record that people were going to be able to receive that. And I mean, even now, people listening to this that might be fans of Wilderness, like they might not even know this stuff. I don't know. But like, it's like, it was important for me to say that at that time. It was like the thing I had to do.
2: But that is the most important thing because, you know, when I get sent lots of music or people send me things, I was like, oh, play this on the show and blah, blah. And you can feel it. The fact that there's a real emotion driving it is the most important thing sure, because it's real, yeah. you know, and that's, I listen to a lot of stuff that's not real. I need to be clear, like if someone makes something because, hey, this sounds cool, that's mm-hmm. also acceptable, right? Because if it sounds sure. cool, it sounds cool. But sometimes you can feel that some stuff is hollow. It's like... Oh, I heard this so I wanted to make it too and I did a tutorial online and this is what I've come up with. Play my song. Yeah. And it's like, well, I don't feel like you care about this. Like, there's just, there's nothing here. There's no... Well, I think, I think the goal has to be that you, and
1: this is the thing, going back to what I tell a lot of people when I get emails or whatever, and like, you have to spend time to cultivate your voice and figure out what your voice is. Like, what are you trying to say? Like, what are you, and I think I got to a place after, after Charles Park 3, it was like, I couldn't make a record that was just a collection of like tracks where I was like, man, I made all these tracks and this feels like a record, you know, like it, it just became a thing where I was like, I have to actually like have a, an emotional tether that is going to push me through this. And that was the real difference. And I think it's kind of interesting because I had a conversation with somebody recently and they were saying, you know, I think that your music comes from the sort of real, true kind of pathos of 80s soundtracks you know it's not necessarily the 80s pastiche so much as it's the emotional thing you know it's like when I was working on wilderness I kept thinking about things that you would hear in the 80s that were sort of darker you know things like I think my touchstones in the 80s are less sort of the flash uh, flashiness kind of of those films and more things like you know never-ending story or dark crystal or like legend is a good example of that like Mm. I was talking about this the other day even Teen Wolf is an example of that right so like when Teen Wolf starts and you're watching this movie and it's a ridiculous concept of a kid that turns into a wolf and plays basketball right and <laughs> you, but you're thinking about the idea but it's like when the film starts it has this score that just hangs it's like haunting to hear that like it has that little like motif where it's like these like synthesized drums and they're heavily like, re, like tons of reverb and super gated and then you have This like little synth melody That's just real sporadic And I think they throw like a little bit of bass Into it like every once in a while But it's like totally synth sort of I can't remember if it's like actually synth bass Or synth slap bass or something But it's like all of it just feels very DX7 Kind of FM synthesis And it feels uncertain and I think that's where I've always tried to come from. I want the music to feel uncertain. I want you to kind of get a vibe from it that's a little bit dark and a little bit off-center. Not necessarily just... I When I was making... When I would make IDM music when I was younger, I would play it for people and somebody said to me once, like, all this music sounds like somebody pushed over the China hutch. <laughs> you know? It's like... And it's like, that's kind of what I like. I like music that feels like it could go off the rails at any minute. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you listen to Wilderness you know if you listen to it as a whole that's kind of the vibe of the record it's like this whole thing feels like it's maybe gonna like fall apart at any minute and that was the goal
2: it's sort of that having the the theme run through your albums which makes it difficult for me to pick individual tracks because I, I mean I try but as I listen I'm like it is one unit Yeah, you know a lot of these things it, and uh, when people just have a collection of track albums it's a lot easier for me to just be like yep this is the track I like and this one and this one <laughs> you know like I like to pick and choose like I'm pulling berries off a of, A bushel or something Stupid metaphor But uh, (laughs) but, (laughs) I will not do that again (laughs) But yeah Well let's move forward here So we were talking about uh, Not having any fucking drops here But then when we get to Wave hymnal yeah. I feel like we, we come back to some sort of some thumping beats and stuff. And, yeah, Wave Hymnal is the drop central. So we're going to listen to a track from Wave Hymnal but it looks like we are going to have to continue this conversation uh, into another episode because we still got Hit TV and Brigador and a whole bunch of other stuff to talk about so we're going to leave it here today. We're going to listen to a track from Wave Hymnal and then we'll continue our conversation with Makeup and Van Vanity set next week. So this is Makeup and Vanity Set and the track Stalker. <laughs>
3: we the ah. top of the top
2: was my conversation with makeup and vanity set part one so tune in next week to beyond synth where we will continue our conversation and give it the conclusion it so deserves i guess i still have to edit it i'm uh, procrastinating but listen you guys have a good week and uh thank you very much for listening to beyond synth i'm andy last uh I'm, have i ever signed off before I know I've said I need a catchphrase, but I don't think I've ever signed off. Anyways, uh, check out the show. What? What What am I doing? (laughs) I'll talk to you next week. Uh, Why do I? (laughs) I'm like, you know, when you're in a relationship for the first time and you're young and you can't hang up the phone on the other person. That's that's what it's like whenever I try and end this show. Take care. What? (laughs) This has been Beyond Synth.